Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning, LBCF. Just really grateful uh, that we can all be here today. Um, you know, I started coming um, to the church about two and a half years ago, almost two and a half years. And, you know, I was brought on as the community pastor. And one of the things I have tried to do in my time here is pay attention to, um, to people. Part of that meant um, trying to have one-on-ones with you all. And, and if I haven't had a one-on-one with you yet, please, I would love to. Uh, but my, my hope is to discern what God is doing in the community because, as, as we've said before, you know, this church is not like senior pastor-led where the senior pastor gets the vision from God and this is what we ought to do. You know, it, it's more like a family in the way parents raise their kids trying to discern um, how their kids are wired, what their kids love, what they're passionate about, and being the kind of person that will help... Um, you know, um, raise that child in, into some into a, a person that can flourish. And one of the people I've been meeting with, um, I think it's been over a year now. Uh, Trisha and I got together and just hearing her passion, and there was so much alignment with what we were we were thinking. Um, and you know, as we began to talk, we began to dream about what this could mean for church. Uh, what this could mean in terms of future participation with organizations like City Heart. Um, And and really what we want to do today is invite you to dream with us. Um, We hope that some of you will be inspired by what is shared so that we can become kingdom builders and bring the kingdom of God more and more into the city of um, La Mirada. That's where I live. Long Beach. (laughs) And La Mirada. I hope we can bring it to La Mirada. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so, um, yeah, just really grateful. So Trisha and I will be um, speaking today and really looking forward to, you know, what she has to share to all of us. Well, I'll start this. Back in, I think, 2012, um, my siblings and I and our whole family went to the Philippines um, together. And it was, a, it was a trip because our, our parents both had just passed away and we wanted to, um, like, you know, honor, um, our, you know, my father and, and spread his ashes in his birthplace. And, you know, we, we um, rented some vans and we began to, like, tour different places. And one of the places we went to was North Sagurai, a small town about two hours um, north of Manila um, by car. And, you know, it was a, the place where me and my siblings were born. And my brother would share all these stories about um, North Sagarai because, you know, he was the oldest and he had most of the recollection of the place. But one story he would share is about the river, about him, um, like, swimming. And, and my brother is here, by the way, in the hat back there. Um, and that's his wife, Charity. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he would share all these stories. And so as, you know, we were like, you know, um, in the city, I remember as we were about to leave the city because we were going to head to the airport um, the next day um, to go to another part of the Philippines, um, the kids saw the river and they were like, stop the van. And they said, we want to get in. Can we swim in the river that Uncle Leno used to swim in? 
and that uh, grandma used to swim in. My dad didn't know how to swim. <laughs> but, um, and, and so we stopped the car, and so about four of them, like, you know, they didn't even have swim clothes on, but they just, like, you know, took off what they could, and, and they began to swim. And to our delight, we were just watching them. And so, you know, we told them, you guys got to get back into the cars, and we began to drive off. And I kid you not, maybe five minutes into the drive as we drove upstream the river, we saw this dump truck dumping some kind of, like, stuff into the river. And my heart sank. (laughs) I was like... I'm not sure that was a good idea um, that we let the kids swim in there. Sure enough, the next day as we boarded the plane and, you know, we landed in, in our destination, um, my son um, started saying he wasn't feeling well. And then he broke into the fever and, you know, thankfully we were able to take him to the emergency room, get medication, and the fever, you know, broke a, a couple of days later. But I remember that being a very scary time for me and just wondering, you know, what did the kids just swim into? And so, you know, memories like that and a lot of other things, you know, um, I'm in a place where I support regulations that maintain control of what business can and cannot do. I remember, you know, um, growing up as an elementary kid, um, school kid in the 1970s. We lived in the Echo Park area of Los Angeles for many years. And if you're, you know, if you're um, younger than me, this might not be a, a memory for you, but I remember clearly as a kid being told in school that we had to stay indoors multiple times throughout the year. Because there was like stage one, stage two smog alerts all the time. And so I decided like recently to look up, you know, how many smog alerts we actually had back in the 1970s. And to my surprise, you know, there were 200 bad air days a year on average. I mean, that's just like, that was just normal for us back in the 70s. Um, In the 80s, thankfully, it went down to 140 days a year. And, and you know what? One of the things that I'm thankful for, and beginning in the 2000s, it began to go into the single digits. Now, how did that happen? Well, it happened because of the Clean Air Act, you know, that was inaugurated in the 1970 and 1977, when um, air pollution in Southern California was being like, um, you know, really, tr- the, the government was trying to tackle it. And so they enacted all these smog regulation rules, um, and, you know, you know, with emissions control, and California has one of the strongest, <coughs> you know, emissions regulations in, in the whole world, actually. Um, but I remember also back in the 80s, um, I was an avid listener of Christian radio, KKLA, especially the afternoon talk radio. And I would hear um, so much talk against... Um, smog control. I remember all these Christian talk show hosts saying, what's happening in California? You know, the environmentalists are taking over. We need to really push against this. And then going to seminary and having a conversation around the table, you know, with some of my seminary um, colleagues, um, you know, asking about, you know, what what are your thoughts about, like, some of the conversations we're having about the environment? 
And again, I heard the rhetoric around, you know, it's just a bunch of environmentalists that's pushing this. And, you know, the church has to be, like, focused on what we do best. And, and I asked, what do we do best? And this person said, my goal is to get to heaven and to try to bring as many people as I can with me. And he said, trying to focus on fixing the earth is like trying to reorganize the furniture on the Titanic. It's going to sink anyway. And I was thinking, are you, are you like kidding me right now? And so I began to like press a little bit more and, and I actually asked, what are the biblical like reasons for your position in arguing against smog control? And he honestly, you know, couldn't think of one. But I do remember um, going to a birthday dinner of a friend of mine from church. Um, I think this was back in the 1990s and I met my first Christian environmentalist. And she was working for this nonprofit that was, you know, trying to advocate for environmental concerns. And I was just fascinated. I was like, here's the first, like, reasonable presentation of what creation care should be about and how we as Christians should engage in it. But, you know, it, it was like far and few in between that I would hear anybody, you know, talk about this. In fact, just recently, Lifeway Research, a conservative think base, um, cited that 77% of evangelical pastors say they never talk about creation care. I mean, that's the dominant, you know, thought among, um, con you know, tr traditional churches is that creation care is really a non-issue. But should it be a non-issue? One of the things that I have become so much more aware of is that Scripture does indeed talk to us about caring for the earth. In fact, in creation, in the very beginning story, it says in Genesis 2, 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put ma the man he had formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food. In the middle of the garden, you know, was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a river watering the garden that flowed from Eden. And then it goes on to verse 15. It said, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. That's like the, one of the very first, like, commands, right, that God gives to humankind. He puts Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Uh, the, the, the words in Hebrew can also be translated to serve or, or to preserve. But I think part of the problem is that, you know, one of the things that I've heard so often in, in my Christian upbringing is that this wasn't the focus of, of so many um, people like myself. Our focus was found instead, you know, a few chapters, a few verses before in Genesis 1.26, where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And that the word dominion, you know, it was always understood as 
We are the highest and we have power over everything. And it became this like human-centric version of trying to like see that all of creation was, was meant for our like own benefit and we could do whatever we want with it. Um, and so dominion was seen as this right to dominate, to possess, you know, with absolute control. But I love what Francis Schaeffer had to say about this. He writes, fallen man has dominion over nature, but he uses it wrongly. The Christian is called to exhibit this dominion, but exhibit it rightly, treating the things as having value itself, exercising dominion without being destructive. And I think that's the key phrase. How do you do it in a way that actually cares? But unfortunately, I think there's been so much and more so in, in recent years, you know, of us not caring for the world, of us polluting the environment. And yet Genesis is clear that God gives humankind the responsibility to care. And because of this commandment in Genesis, it, it makes sense to me that our churches ought to have this robust attempt to address things that affect literally billions of people who inhabit it. It should matter to us that billions of people around the world lack access to safe drinking water. It should matter to us that impoverished communities are being affected more by climate change than ever before. But whenever we start labeling things as a liberal agenda and think that everything under the liberal agenda should be discarded, we no longer become good thinkers. We no longer become proactive of what does the scriptures actually, what do the scriptures actually say? And the scriptures, I think, is pretty clear that God put us on earth to take care of it. And in my understanding, that has never been revoked. That has never been revoked. And so Jonathan Merritt, you know, um, actually presented this argument that, you know, as, as theologians know, there are two types of revelations that is, you know, pretty much, uh, um, you know, reference in Scripture. They're, they are general revelation and special revelation. And so this is what he writes. General revelation is found in nature and reveals God's attributes, like Romans 1, 18 through 20. Special revelation is the disclosure of God's truth in the Bible, 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And so special revelation is scripture, right? God speaking, God like giving audible words to, you know, what God is thinking. General revelation is what we see in, in nature. It, it's God like presenting himself to us as we see the skies, as we look at the beaches, as we look at the trees, lift up their arms, you know, singing praises to God. That's general revelation. And so he writes, through general revelation, we can know God. But through special revelation, we can, wait, through general revelation, we can know about God. But through special revelation, we can know God. General revelation is significant, even though we don't often talk about it. As John Stott has written, the creation is a visible disclosure of the invisible God, an intelligible disclosure of the otherwise unknown God. 
just as artists reveal themselves in what they draw, paint, and sculpt, so the divine artist has revealed himself in his creation. And Merritt goes on to write, Recognizing the revelatory nature of God's revelation should cause Christians to respect the media of creation. That's why the scriptures instructs us to hold the word of God in high regard. It is not to be treated like other books, but for the Bible is very special. Similarly, we should respect the natural world as the container of divine revelation. And so as, as God has revealed himself, you know, in, in creation, you know, there's this something about like when an artist creates something, when I make something, when I do a project around the house and when I remodel or when I do photography, I want it to be admired. But if somebody like diminishes my work by like just throwing it away, or by painting something over it, it, it devalues not just the work, but it's a reflection on your respect for the creator. And so, you know, we have like crash here today. <laughs> and, and we have crash in the communion table. Now, something about that image should be bothersome, right? It should be bothersome that in a place that we like hire cleaners every Saturday to make sure the place is like spotless, that every Sunday we expect the place to look, you know, you know, presentable so that our eyes can focus on, on Christ and that we can worship. It should stir something in us that this building isn't the only place where God resides. That the scripture says all of creation is God's. And so if it would bother us that there's trash on the communion table, it should create something like this disturbance in us if we witness it out on our streets, if we witness it out in this world. And, and honestly, it's just even far more than, right, just the, just the trash um, that we see. Because Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. And I know some people have told me, hey, Danny, Jesus never talked about climate change. <laughs> like, that's a new science. I mean, we, we now have new satellites, new, new equipment that can, from space, look at the changes that is happening around the world that Jesus didn't have access to. But what Jesus does say is take care of your neighbor, love your neighbor. And the science and the data is showing that dirty air, according to the American Lung Association in 2011 study, that California's dirty air causes 19,000 premature deaths, 9,400 hospitalizations, and more than 300,000 respiratory illnesses. The RAND Corporation showed that the cost to the state, federal, and private health insurance 
was 193 million of hospital-based medical care. How we treat the environment actually affects people's lives. And if we are to, like, think deeply about Jesus' words that we ought to love our neighbor, then it ought to affect us. It ought to affect us, and we ought to be able to say, we need to address pollution. As the church, we need to be leaders in thinking about caring for creation because that was one of the first tasks that God ever, ever gave people. I love what the Creation Care website had to say. Bluntly it wrote, environmental problems are a sin problem. It's a sin problem. And the more we kind of turn a blind eye towards like our consumption and our use of goods without reflecting deeply how that affects people downstream, the more we ignore it, the more we are complicit to the growing problem of, of people suffering. And, and as usual, people who are in impoverished communities suffer the most because they lack access, right? They lack access to health care. And so what does it mean to be people who are trying to bring the kingdom of God here? What does it mean for us to think about Revelation where it tells us, that God is going to bring um, the new heaven and the new earth. That God isn't going to get rid of creation. God is re recreating and, and, and beautifying and, and bringing it to a place back to, to, to what it should have been. That God cares deeply about the earth and nowhere in scripture to say that, does it say God is going to abandon it. But in fact, God tells us to take part in caring because all of creation reflects the majesty and glory of God. And so right now, I'd like to call on Trisha to kind of sh just share her heart, something that she has like thought of deeply, way more than I have. And, and I want to confess to you that this is something that I'm like trying to figure out. I'm not this like person that is an expert on it. I'm such a consumer of stuff that I don't think deeply. But I do pray as a church that we will grow together. So, here's Trisha. Hi. Uh, boy, it's bright up here. <laughs> you guys are out there, right? <laughs> okay. um, so, Danny asked me to kind of give some context of me as an artist, so I'm going to talk a little, tiny bit about that. So one thing intrinsic to being an artist is a process of learning who you are, what you what you notice, what is consistent. What? Close. But Danny didn't have to do that. <laughs> I'm not good at this. That's okay. That's okay. Okay, should I start over? Okay. So one thread that runs through my work is noticing what is already present, especially things that are often passed over or even intentionally 
avoided. So this is a brief interview of my work, for time's sake. Um, so for years, I've made functional work of porcelain from moles, from everything from trash to treasures uh, that are handed down for me. This is a teapot made from a plastic container, um, and then a cake pan. This is a, um, like my kids' plastic whistle is the top. And um, then these are cream and sugars from like grocery store jam jars. So, but as I'm making this, other stories are pulling at me. This functional work requires really tight tolerances in fit and in glazing, but clay's nature is to be played with. And I also want to talk about other things with my art. So I started making sculptures to tell stories of people that were homeless. Um, to put a bug in your ear, at this time I was working with the multi-service center, um, which is like a service center for, um, for all kinds of things people need. Um, anyway, creating art classes for people to participating, participate in while they were waiting in the lobby for their appointments. And we might get to pick that project up again, so keep that in the back of your head. Okay, then the pandemic began and those opportunities ended. I wanted to develop a new way of working with color and also wanted to address the disparaging conversations regarding immigration and diversity. I thought to use fishing floats to talk about this. These floats are from Japan that were found on a beach in Hawaii and given to me. There's, there's a randomness to what floats up on the beach and to me, a sense of wonder. Each float has had a journey from a land I may never see parted from an owner I will never know. Yet some mysterious current brought it to this shore and creates a connection. To me, the story of floats mirror the randomness of how friendships and communities are formed. Our place in the world is often a result of chance intersections in time and space, especially as this beauty and diversity is what makes us us, makes us human, one human race. So I began with molds of fishing floats and trash objects, and then I started playing with like texture and color and messed with the glazes to like get, anyway, it's just been fun, crusty, let things just happen. And then I've turned them into neighborhoods. So there, there's a gang of these on the welcome table if you wanna see them in real life after the service. So I'm still processing how to install them and how to infuse them with a sense of being human perhaps creating them a larger scale and adding immigration stories um, and maybe personal stories in people's own handwriting. Okay. <coughs> so simultaneously, you know, the pandemic everywhere that I usually exercise is closed, so I begin to walk the beach. To walk the beach in Long Beach is to encounter trash and thus begin my accidental journey into the soul-bending complexity and danger of plastic pollution. Perhaps you already know that we currently eat, swallow, and breathe a credit card's worth of plastic each week, and that somewhere between the years 2040 and 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish, all of which is carcinogenic, affects climate change, and causes increased risk of a host of diseases. So as I walked, I went through a progression of thoughts. The first thought was, 
how did this mess get here? I mean, there is so much. There's, they have like shovels that come and make piles all down the beach that are taller than me, our beach in Long Beach. And then, and some of those things you might expect to find on the beach, like sand toys in various degrees of disintegration, um, you know, silverware, plastic silverware, balls. And clearly much of this has been washed down the Los Angeles River. Um, this is one day's, from one day's walk, and then that's that same day spread out. So, I mean, there's everything from Baskin-Robbins spoons when there's no Baskin-Robbins for miles, you know, prescription bottles from pharmacies up in Los Angeles. It's <laughs> so then the next progression was that it became more like social anthropology. Like, what is the story behind these things that got tossed? Cigarette lighters, like so many, I probably have collected a thousand cigarette lighters. Um, and um, also think, wait, um, like holiday decorations from any holiday, any day of the year, it's at the beach, floating up. Um, tooth, tooth floss picks, Starbucks stirs, a jail bracelet from Los Angeles County Jail, all kinds of things. And then I realized that some of these things are things no one meant to lose. They're shoes, like so many shoes. Little girls' barrettes, Peppa the Pig, Paw Patrol, car seats, a woman's journal. And then I started noticing things I have at my house. We have that plastic dish. I have that same asthma inhaler. I've eaten at that fast food restaurant. Sure, it didn't end up on the beach, but it's somewhere. So we're all on the hook. Up until now, I've been a regular person. I recycle. I'm careful about plastics. But it had been more of a distant existential problem that someone else would probably fix. Now I realize that this giant see something, say something is that no one is stepping in unless we do. And it's happening right here, and it's happening in landfills everywhere. So how can we help? The biggest task is to stop the flow. The petrochemical companies are working hard to increase the use of plastic. They've spent millions on campaigns blaming individuals and municipalities for recycling, not recycling well enough. That's the whole, like, keep America beautiful, recycle. That was all petrochemicals companies trying to make us think that if we recycled, it would all be fine. Um, but we aren't and can't recycle our way out of this. We can be part of insisting the petrochemical giants be held accountable for pollution they are causing. Um, we are wreaking havoc on poor countries and poor populations who are taking on the trash we've wished away, and it's devastating. I mean, Danny spoke a bit to that, but if you've ever seen pictures of those giant piles of plastic trash and people trying to pick through it, making a living, and m most of the plastic is worthless, so... It just is like injury on injury, and what they can't get rid of, they incinerate. So in all those other countries, they're burning our trash and polluting their own countries. So to understand more fully, I highly recommend this movie, The, 
the, um, the story of plastic. Oh, you can't see it very well in there. Anyway, um, we're thinking we'll have a movie night here to watch it because it's just, it's both depressing, angering, and also hopeful because there really is a lot of thought and motion towards correcting this. And I just wanted to say that the slides with writing, I screenshotted from that movie, so give them credit. So secondly, we can be vocal with our votes. There are a lot of organizations and governments working to end the plastic pollution quickly. This week, a 55-nation coalition is meeting in Paris working on this very thing. Our government is not one of them. So we can let our representatives know that plastic pollution must be a top priority. There's not a lot of time to turn this around. Locally, we can ask for recycling systems that truly recycle and stop incinerating our, white, our white trash. Every year, the incinerator in Long Beach takes on 500,000 tons of waste and turns it into 150,000 tons of toxic ash that we're breathing. So the third thing would be, be a selective consumer. Choose products with less plastic, even if it's a bit less convenient, especially single-use plastics. They say that a million plastic water bottles are made per minute. So bring your water bottle. <laughs> Use a glass cup. So our, our purchasing habits have a huge impact on how, th th how things are made and delivered. And it's easy these days to choose sane alternatives. Um, wait, can you go back one? So this is um, like these giant plastic laundry bottles are like 60 to 90% water anyway. And they're clogging up landfills with high density polyethylene. Like they think like 90 million laundry jugs are discarded every year. So in the landfills. And then um, this is what our laundry looks like now. So the, on the very left side, the white, those are just sheets of soap. And they come in a cardboard box. And that's a um, like pre-spot thing. That's shampoo. That's conditioner. And it works great. It's like <laughs> no difference. Um, so some of the resources available, I mean, there's lots of companies, but here's two. Um, this is, um, there's a company called BYO Long Beach, so you bring your containers to the store and they'll fill them up. Um, and then this is the Grove, uh, it's an online store where, where I usually shop, and I can even give you a gift code. <laughs> I, later we're going to put, like, the Story of Plastic, other um, links on our LBCF Facebook page, so you can just click on it and find what you need. So, and then uh, also seek out companies offering truly biodegradable solutions and let them know you noticed. Like we've discovered some coffee shops that use lids that are made out of cornstarch instead of plastic and also restaurants that will serve you on styrofoam. So, you know, like that's another way that we can have our purchasing power change. Um, so long-term, that's the hope. We change the way they even make things. Short-term, we're adding less to the pile. And also, um, Mary put up a sign-up sheet in the welcome table. So you can, if you want to like help 
figure all this out, then please sign up because I'm not an authority. I'm working on one project, but I really think it's pretty cool how people are start the ones starting to change all this. So anyway, personally, as I walked, it became clear to me that the say something in my case involves making a giant sculpture of all this plastic. My hope is to have it installed at the Long Beach Museum of Art, which overlooks the beach from whence all this plastic has come. So still a lot of work to be done and even to get to the proposal stage. But as God's children, we are called to be caretakers of this gift of a planet entrusted to us. Removing this pollution is vital to our survival. It's daunting. We have choices to make, new habits to form. I have been daunted. Making a huge plastic sculpture isn't in my wheelhouse, yet the call to bring this crisis forward in a very local, visual way seems plain to me. I very much find that learning to live and love like Jesus is a lot about taking risks, walking on water, doing things you cannot do, like talking today. <laughs> I've spent so much time on this project already, I can't even count the time stooping, bending, picking it up bit by bit. I haven't really cared if I look like a crazy woman with my bags and buckets, but I have wondered if I actually am a crazy woman. Like, who does this? Who spends this much time, which is my life, on something when I have no idea where it's actually going? Daunting and at times discouraging. A few months back, Steve Thomas asked us, how do we develop a godly sense of dependence when our culture values independence and self-reliance? I work alone and lean towards self-reliance slash stress. But the actual fun part is knowing that I'm 100% not able to do this without God making a way before me and then getting to watch God make that way. It's the fun and also a challenge to remember and take courage. If you've ever answered the Spirit's tug on your life, you also know the wonder of the path opening up in unexpected ways. So this is just a few examples from this journey for me. Um, so at a neighborhood party, I meet a man who happens to be visiting from Australia, and he works for a, this international company, Tomra, which has a whole division working on creating full circle recycling systems. So, and he sends me resources. And then this is Ryan, kind of a stand-in for the many people on the beach who have stopped to talk to me or offer help, including like one day the guy that's the head of the California Corps, Conservation Corps in Long Beach, like can I send teams to help build this thing? So I mean, okay God, I guess I'll keep going. Um, Ryan works for the Long Beach Parks Rec and Marine, and he um, also wants to help and gave me more contacts, uh, um, ideas for the city. And then one day I'm in a store I like never go to, and I end up in this random conversation with a woman who connects me with her daughter, who is the executive director of Algita, Algita, the research organization that discovered the Pacific Garbage Patch. So she also sends me many resources and connects me with art, other artists working with plastic pollution. And they actually might want to put this 
beach plastic project under their umbrella, so like be a fiduciary um, receptor for us. Anyway, and also my neighborhood, they're like 100% behind helping with this. They've already helped with washing trash and sorting. Um, and to not, Tuesday night, we're having our first like logistical team meeting, which makes total sense that, God, that the God of love would require me to reach out for help from others. So I feel encouraged, dear heart. Our, okay, our challenges are epic, but if building a better world seems out of reach, then we need to become people who can reach farther together. So, thank you. And Jenny? Now Jenny's going to speak with us. I've been, I've been asked to talk about communion, and I'll be honest with you, I was kind of peer pressured to go along with the program to put trash on the communion table. Um, and I think it reminds me of like the first time I've heard of the concept of open communion, that anybody that wants communion can have communion, I reacted to that with such extreme anger. I was like, communion's for believers. If we let anyone just have communion, doesn't that cheapen the body and the blood and the sacrifice of Christ? And it took me a long time to process through, and now I can serve communion with trash on the table um, because the life of Christ shows that his holiness has never been diminished by on our holiness. That I am the bleeding woman who has been suffering and longing to be touched by Jesus And to find healing when I am expecting rebuke. And also, it's Pride Month. And I wish I can tell you that I feel really proud of myself, really proud of my relationship. But I can only tell you that I am holding so much grief. That there is this culture war that's being fought. And it feels like one side of me, the believer identity part that rests in Jesus, right? As a believer, I believe that it's against my faith for so long to identify as an LGBT person, to be in a committed, non-struggling relationship. Um, and I felt like I had to choose for a long time. And now I'm seeing people that profess Christ fixate on LGBT exclusion throughout this country with vehemence and anger. And I grieve for my brothers and sisters in the LGBT community that are feeling unsafe, for families with children that have to make tough decisions. 
of moving, of protecting, of hiding who they are to be safe. Because existing as an LGBT person is always political. And I'm st I don't want to, but it is what it is. I can't just be. I'm always aware where I am, if the people around me accept me for who I am. I'm always looking outward for pr approval, and, and then I feel like I'm blamed for, oh, if they're so proud of who they are, why do they need me to accept them? If they are so proud of their love, why do they need God to affirm them? And I turn to the prodigal son story and how I feel like Christians have patted themselves on the back for feeling like we are the, the LGBT community is a prodigal son, that they go off and they squander their inheritance and they do drugs and do this and do that and do all sorts of sinful things, right? And I was feeling so judged by people that profess Christ. While I was at the same time judging those people just as hard. I mean, if not harder, because I'm so good at it. <laughs> and I realized that I was identifying with the older brother so much. I have followed all your commandments. I've read the ESV study Bible from cover to cover. That's how much I love you, Jesus. And they have everything, all the privileges in the world. Their family loves them just as they are. And they have never, ever had to doubt. If their hands have touched the body of Christ, and somehow it cheapens it, And I have found that fighting those fights and judgments have not brought me closer to God. Thank you. One bit. And for the conservatives that are fighting these culture wars, that don't want to hear about gay pride, they want to celebrate straight pride, does that help your relationship with your wife, with your husband at all? Does that make your love be more fulfilling at all? If you gatekeep, who gets to take the elements? Who gets to call themselves a believer? Does that make your faith any richer? No. That you are carrying a burden that God has never put on you. That God is continuing to draw people closer to him, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. That the older brother was removed from the love of Christ by his own shame. That he has spent all that time with the father and yet closed him off 
from the love of the Father. He worked and worked as if that will earn him anything. And the kingdom of God, the good news we proclaim to this world is that we don't believe you can be either a believer or Christian and gay. It's not either or. You're not a liberal person that wants to save the environment, a hippie, or you're a believer who believes that God's going to come destroy it, so we might as well just pollute it faster for some reason. <clears throat> That's literally word for word. I heard this from a brother in Christ at a Chick-fil-A my first year of college. <laughs> and that was just the start of the downhill <laughs> journey. I think the world offers us this false dichotomy <sighs> that you're either in or you're out and you can only become in if you push somebody else out. <sighs> and the good news of Christ is that we are enough because he was enough. That this was the price paid for our salvation that this is what we do every week. We take the body that was broken for us. We take the wine, the blood that was shed for us. And we bring our own selves to receive it. There's nothing that could be earned, that nothing can be held back from the elements because they become part of us. It fuels us. It goes with us for the rest of our week. Until next week, we come and we're reminded again. And we do it in community with people who tell us, who reflects back to us our belovedness that is found in Christ. So I invite everyone to come to the table and receive from God himself the most precious thing that could be offered. Can we pray for the elements? Would you join me in prayer, please? Lord God, As we prepare our hearts for the elements, Lord, with the realities of this church, with the affirmation of this church, Lord, ring out to everyone in this pews, God. Would you remind us, Lord, of our chosenness, that you, Lord, have faith in us, God, that that good news of Christ, Lord, is that we don't have to fight these culture wars, Lord God, that divides us from each other. As believers, Lord, we are free to set Announce the good news, Lord, that we are free from shame. 
from a faith-based, works-based approach, God. That we take in the goodness and we taste and know that the Lord is good, that he is for us and not against us, that, Lord, you are proud of us in a way that we can never understand, that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, Lord God. That you take what this world has despised, God, and you held them in great honor. Lord, that rejoice that in this church, God, I can come and rest in you. Would the good news be true, Lord God, in every sense in my life, Lord God? Bless the body, bless the wine, the juice, Lord, and bless us as we proclaim this good news that you are faithful. You are always drawing us to yourself, Lord God. That you are faithful. Amen, amen. And as the Lord tends to your heart, if anything is stirring in you that you would like coverage over, the prayer team will be available to hold you 